of Gary Talks 2 for the new year. Remember, it's the only podcast guaranteed to reduce your waistline and increase your IQ at the same time as you listen or you get your money back. Not many people are brave enough to say that. This is the second episode for 2024 and this promises to be a very busy year uh, for those who follow the threat to our democracy that the upcoming election represents. I know my viewers and listeners care as much as I do, so I will continue to bring you the events of today, but also show, as I have always done, showing how historical fiction is a, just a mirror on events of years gone by in our shared history in this country. In my historical fiction series, Journey, the Story of an American Family, uh, available anywhere, I bring up a lot of issues that we still face in this country today, especially as it applies to race. So we are going to take a look at the years immediately following the Civil War, which is where Volume 2 of Journey ends, uh, the Reconstruction years and their aftermath. So this title... This episode is titled uh, The Structure of Voter Suppression because I believe there is a structure to it and I believe it's easily uh, traced, it's easily, its origins are easily defined and easily traced to the present day and we're reliving it. It's as much an issue today as it was then. So buckle up and, uh, and hang on because here we go. Most of you know, if you follow the news at all, um, 19 states, 19 of our uh, fellow American states passed 34 laws severely restricting access to voting in 2021, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. And they're pretty reputable, nonpartisan. In Georgia, the governor, Brian Kemp, who came to law by manipulating votes, signed a law limiting the number of drop boxes for ballots, especially in poor and black neighborhoods. In Texas, their uh, inhumane Governor Greg Abbott, who thinks he knows more about women's reproductive cycles than they do themselves, signed a law completely banning 24-hour voting and drive-through voting because it was uh, proving too popular with the people they don't want voting. Those are just two out of thousands, two examples of a reflex reaction from our MAGA Nazi neighbors to those numbers, those turnout numbers. You see, all these laws came after record turnout in the 2020 election, including among African-American voters. And the Brennan Center's research clearly shows that the voter restrictions nationwide that are coming that have been passed already are more likely to impact African-American voters 
and minority and poor voters as well. Imagine that. What a surprise. So historians are saying that uh, this wave of new laws making it harder to vote echo the backlash to the electoral gains made by African Americans during the Reconstruction period immediately following the Civil War. One of the reasons that it's so timely, I believe, and important to learn about these black political leaders during Reconstruction is because we have this unprecedented wave of new laws that are meant to suppress voters, specifically African American voters. In some cases, in order to ensure that African American voices are not truly ever heard in the political process. Before the Civil War began, black Americans had only been able to vote in a few northern states and not very many of those. And there were virtually no black office holders anywhere. The months after the Union victory in April of 1865 saw extensive mobilization within the black community with meetings, parades, and, ex- and petitions calling for legal and political rights including the all-important right to vote. And during the first two years of Reconstruction, from 65 to 67, black people organized what they would call equal rights leagues throughout the South and held state and local conventions to protest discriminatory treatment and demand suffrage, a right to vote, as well as just plain old basic equality before the law. These black activists bitterly, bitterly opposed the Reconstruction policies of President Andrew Johnson, of course came to power after Lincoln was assassinated, which uh, in fact excluded black people from Southern politics and allowed right away state legislatures to pass restrictive black codes regulating the lives of the newly freed men and women. I've talked at great length about the black codes in previous episodes. If you care to learn more on the subject, go back and listen to a few. So fierce resistance to these discriminatory laws as well as growing opposition to President Johnson's policies in the North, actually it was more of a political squabble than any policies he had, led to a Republican victory in the U.S. congressional elections of 1866 and to a new phase of Reconstruction that would give black Americans a much more active role in the political, economic, and social life of the South. So, what what came next? Well, I'm very glad that you asked that. Just hang in there. Okay, once again, we are back. We are back. Yes, we are. So, um, as I was saying before about Reconstruction, there was uh, two different periods. There was the first two years, 65, 67. And then there was the decade after that, 67 to 77, known as Radical Reconstruction, after the House changed hands in that election. 
after that Congress granted black American men, of course only men could vote back then, women were too uh, flippity, the status and rights of citizenship, including the right to vote, as guaranteed by the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So beginning in 1867, branches of the Union League, which encouraged the political activism of black Americans, spread throughout the South. A total of 265 African-American delegates were elected to this league, more than 100 of whom had been born into slavery, entered this life as slaves. Almost half of the elected black delegates served in South Carolina and Louisiana, where black people had the longest history of political organization. In most other states, uh, African Americans were unprepared and therefore underrepresented compared to their population. They just weren't ready for the people of South Carolina and Louisiana were. In all, 16 African Americans served in the U.S. Congress, including two in the Senate, during this Reconstruction period, more than 600 more were elected to various state legislatures, and hundreds more held all sorts of local offices all across the South. But, as you can expect, as the most radical aspect of this so-called radical Reconstruction period, the uh, political activism of the black community also inspired the most hostility from Reconstruction's opponents. Guess who? Southern whites. They became frustrated with policies giving formerly enslaved men, the men that they used to uh, intimidate every day, the right to vote and hold office. Hold office. They increasingly turned to intimidation and violence as a means of reaffirming the white supremacy that had existed. The Ku Klux Klan targeted local Republican leaders and uh, any black citizen who challenged their white employers. And at least 35, 35 at least, black officials were murdered by the Klan and other um, white nationalists, white supremacist organizations during the Reconstruction era. But on January 6th of 1874, sort of in the middle of all this, a black uh, Republican congressman from South Carolina, a Robert uh, Elliott, was given a speech uh, in favor of what became known as the Civil Rights Act of 1875. And he said this, quote, what you give to one class, you must give to all. What you deny to one class, you shall deny to all. Think about it. Okay, well, welcome back. You know that um, historians say that one of the uh, biggest contributions made by these black office holders, especially across the South, was their role in establishing state-sponsored public schools. 
black lawmakers made up a majority of delegates at the 1868 South Carolina Constitutional Convention, which greenlit tax-funded public schools. Similarly, that's not an easy thing to say, half of the delegates were black at the Louisiana Constitutional Convention, which wrote integrated public schools into their new state constitution. Although, of course, it being Louisiana, um, most of the schools remain segregated anyway, contrary to the law. Then, of course, the backlash began. Black office holders' uh, numbers started to decline after 1877. Why, you ask? Well, as part of a deal to settle the uh, hotly contested 1876 presidential election, Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes won the presidency in exchange for the removal of federal troops in the South that had helped protect black voters. Now think about that. So therefore, in subsequent elections, the uh, Triple K, the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, vigilante violence at uh, polling stations drove black Americans away from those stations and the ballot boxes. Some uh, Reconstruction state governments were overthrown. All the black office holders were uh, chased out of town in a lot of cases or killed. And the new state governments passed restrictive voting laws in what became known as the Jim Crow era. Again, discussed a lot in earlier podcasts. While the 15th Amendment of the Constitution, remember, said states couldn't restrict voting based on race, state legislatures passed laws that mandated, you know, pay for play or poll taxes, a fee to vote, and literacy tests with questions like how many bubbles are there in a bar of soap, and subjected African Americans to them a lot more than white Americans. You know, it wasn't until nearly a century later, a century later before the 1965 Voting Rights Act made those bogus literacy tests and uh, and poll taxes completely illegal. But one reason the uh, black political leaders of the Reconstruction aren't often taught in U.S. primary schools through high is likely because you know, the backlash to the black office holders during Reconstruction totally contradicts the narrative that America has improved with each generation. You think about it. You grew up with that. I grew up with that. It's a little bit tricky to teach Reconstruction completely and honestly. You know, African Americans during Reconstruction could vote in much of the South. No big issue. And then, after 77, things uh, actually got a lot worse. It doesn't really fit into the narrative of constant progress throughout America since the Civil War, does it? A lot of people don't really realize that black people actually could vote for a period of time and then lost it again and then had to fight for it again during the Civil Rights Movement. They had to get back the right that they had right after the Civil War. 
So teaching about black political leadership provides a much fuller picture of the diverse range of the change makers in the United States in our history. The stories of black office holders during Reconstruction are important for students of all backgrounds to understand the important role that African Americans have always played in our shared American history. So uh, let's do a uh, quick recap of today's uh, topic, shall we? Reconstruction, that period in American history that followed the Civil War, was an era filled with great hope and expectations, but it proved to be far too short to ensure a successful transition from bondage to free labor for the almost 4 million black human beings, black Americans, who'd been born into slavery in the United States. During Reconstruction, the U.S. government maintained an active presence in those former Confederate states to protect the rights of the newly freed slaves and to help them, however incompletely, on the path to becoming full citizens. The Reconstruction was fundamentally about who got to be an American citizen. Remember, it was in that period that the Constitution was amended, once again, to establish birthright citizenship through the 14th Amendment, which also guaranteed equality before the law, regardless of race. The 15th Amendment ratified in 1870, barred racial discrimination in voting, thus securing the ballot for black men nationwide. As a Eric Foner, a leading historian of that particular era, puts it, quote, the issues central to Reconstruction, things like citizenship, voting rights, terrorist violence, the relationship between economic and political democracy continue to royal our society and politics today, making an understanding of Reconstruction even more vital, end quote. That's what I've been saying. Thank you, Mr. Foner. A key lesson of Reconstruction and of its violent racist rollback is, as Mr. Foner continues, quote, and listen to this, that achievements thought permanent can be overturned and rights can never be taken for granted. End quote. Especially appropriate these days. Any women out there in the audience? So by uh, 1877, in a climate of economic crisis, the cost, so-called cost, of protecting the freedoms of African Americans in the South uh, became a price the American government was just no longer willing to pay. 
After that, the long rollback began in earnest. This uh, period of retrenchment, voter suppression, Jim Crow segregation, and quasi-re-enslavement was called by white Southerners, ironically, redemption. Shows you where their head is at. It's easy to trace just how dogged was the determination of this redeemed South to obliterate any trace of gains made by the freed, recently enslaved people. This is just a tiny little example, but it shows you how picky-ass they were with this whole thing. In South Carolina, the state university that had been integrated during Reconstruction, as a matter of fact, Harvard's first black college graduate, a, a Professor Richard T. Greener, was a professor there. Anyway, it was swiftly shut down and reopened three years later for whites only, a designation that continued for 100 years or so. In addition to their moves to strip uh, all African Americans of their voting rights, redeemer governments across the South slashed government investment in infrastructure and social programs across the board, including, of course, those for the region's first state-funded public school systems, which were a product of Reconstruction. Remember, they were segregated, so they could just not fix those schools over there. This painfully long period following Reconstruction just saw the explosion of white supremacist ideology across an array of media and through an extraordinary variety of forms. Everything you can think of back then and today as well. They're all designed to warp the mind toward white supremacist beliefs, no matter how subtle or how blatant. Back in the day, it was the minstrelly and racist visual imagery that were the weapons in the battle over the status of African Americans in a post-slavery America. And disgustingly, some of these images continue to be manufactured to this very day. Enough of that. Well, it's back. It's here. You know. You know you've been waiting and waiting. You know you have. And now it's time for the political rant. Yay! Get a hold of yourself. Anyway, I'm going to keep it short and relatively unscripted today as the, uh, the look back in our history there for suppression ran a little bit long. And it will be political, and it will be a rant. So there you go. So uh, if you're an earthling, I'm sure you have been following the whole southern border fiasco along with other earthlings. It's just incredible, incredible to me that the MAGA Nazis can be so damn transparent in what they do, so oblivious to any repercussions of any kind of what they say and what they do. This bill is a very tough bill, tough enough so that many on our side of the aisle and our side of the sanity divide were not that happy with it. But that's the way compromise and negotiation are supposed to work. No one party gets everything they want but they agree to something that's better than the status quo. Simple, yes? Hmm. Well, apparently it's way too complicated for the MAGA Nazi crowd, who did truly love it until the uh, orange Jesus spoke from on high and uh, ordained 
and said uh, to kill it because he needs something to run on in November. Lord knows he doesn't have any other issue of any kind. So they did. Just like that. Snapped his fingers. They jumped. Then they went on air and said that that was why they did it. They said it out loud. They screwed America again at the behest and at the request of little dirty Donnie. Unbelievable. Then, after that, getting some well-deserved pushback for those rather idiotic statements, uh, they said, uh, they went back out and said, no, we never said that. You misunderstood. It's absurd, according to uh, Pastor Mike, Speaker of the House. They still don't seem to understand that videotape is a real thing. They don't get it. It's real. It's real, guys. And at the same time, get this part. This is the epitome of hypocrisy, if you know what I mean. They are trying to impeach Secretary Mayorkas for not securing the border when they don't want it secured and refuse to give him the tools to secure it. It's just amazing, amazing what that Congress has become. They only want to diminish, this is what I feel is very strongly their reason for doing this, they only want to diminish the import of the word impeach in the American lexicon so all mushroom penis will look better, if you possibly could, I don't know, I don't think so. Anyway, that's it for this episode. I, I hope you liked it, and we'll tell all of your friends, and tell them they'll like it too. If you want to be heard here or in any show I do, I do uh, Weekend Stupid and a couple others on YouTube and one on uh, TikTok. If you want to be heard here or there, just drop me a line at the podcast at GVB Rights. That's the podcast, one word, at my initials, GVB Rights, W-R-I-T-E-S dot com. Or just stop by the site at www.gvbrights.com and check it out. There's a contact page. You can get right to me. There are great books, great pictures, a little bit about the mentoring activity, and so much more. There really is something there for everybody. So I will see you again soon. And like I always say to my kids when I'm mentoring them, adios, mi amigos. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.